Job chapter number 1 tonight. Let's read just the first 12 verses by way of introduction. The Word of God says this, There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I thank you for this day, for your goodness and grace upon us. Lord, for your, your righteousness that you've bestowed through Jesus Christ upon a sinner like me. I pray tonight that, Father, we would, with reverence and respect, approach your word. Lord, that we'd allow ourselves to uh, be examined by it, that we would be open and honest before you and allow your will to be accomplished in our hearts and lives. I ask it now, Father, in Christ's name, amen. In Job chapter number 1, we have really probably one of the most mysterious scenes in the entire Word of God. Has it ever occurred to you that uh, Job, uh, we have no scriptural reason to believe that Job ever knew about what took place in Job chapter number 1 and chapter number 2? Now, there's a possibility at some point the Lord enlightened him, but if that happened, we don't know about it. This is something that happened outside of Job's realm of perception. You know, that's how the battle is. Rarely do you get a panoramic view of it. Uh, you know, when you watch some of these uh, war movies of any type, or uh, especially the ones back in like the Middle Ages, you know, I mean, that was, man, that was warfare. You know, they wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just computers, amen. I mean, they, you hit a guy with an axe, you know, that's tough. I mean, that's warfare, you know, and uh, they didn't have the ability to see the broad spectrum of the battle. All they could focus on was the foe that was in front of them. You know, that's how our spiritual battle is. We're always focused on the foe that's in front of us. Rarely do we get to see the full spectrum of the battlefield and of the battle plan. And so Job is a man that is facing some difficulties in life, but he does not realize and know and nor does he appreciate that there is a spiritual battle taking place at the same time. Let me say that you don't have to be aware of the spiritual battle to be involved in the spiritual battle. Uh, understand that Satan will use you as a pawn if he can. You don't always have to be aware of what's going on to be involved in what's going on. 
Uh, oftentimes when we feel like things just aren't going our way, you hear people say that all the time, or uh, there's a terminology, and I, I kind of hate this word, but sometimes it creeps into my uh, language, uh, I guess just like anybody's, but the word lucky, you know, we'll, we'll say, well, I'm lucky, or that was lucky that that happened. There's no such thing as luck. We understand that. Not so long as a sovereign God sits on the throne will there ever be such a thing as luck. And uh, people say that all the time. That doesn't mean they're not engaged in a spiritual battle or involved in it at least, though they be not engaged. Uh, they are involved in it to some degree, even though they're not aware of it, even though they don't know what's taking place. They're involved in that spiritual battle. And that's how Job was. I want us to notice a few things about his life tonight that I believe are worth mentioning. Now, I'm probably not going to tell you anything you don't know tonight, but I hope that I can encourage you through the Word of God this evening. I want to say a word about the testimony of Job. Now, Job had a good testimony. It's interesting to me to note that his testimony on earth was the same as his testimony in heaven. Now, that's when you know someone is genuine right there. When their testimony on earth is the same thing as their testimony in heaven. When what men see about their walk with God is the same thing that God sees about their walk with God. Now, that's a genuine Christian. And we find that that's true about the life of Job. In fact, there are three things mentioned specifically about Job. And uh, we do see that he's a, a prosperous man. But you know, prosperity is not synonymous with spirituality. Nor is poverty synonymous with spirituality. Uh, both of those things are separate one from the other. Been lots of uh, rich men that love the Lord. Been lots of poor men that love the Lord. Those two things do not necessarily go hand in hand all the time. But he was a prosperous man. He was a man that God had blessed. He was a man that had uh, increased to such a degree that he was the greatest man of all the men of the East. I mean, Job's name was a name that meant something in that part of the world. And he was a prosperous man. But the thing that we learn about the life of Job, we don't really learn from his prosperity. That may be a framework for what was taken from him, but let me say this, that who and what we are is not measured by what we have. We learn that from the life of Job, don't we? Uh, who and what Job was was not measured by the things that he had. When we begin the book of Job, he's got plenty of things. Uh, before we make it two chapters, he's got nothing. By the time we end the book of Job, he's got more than he began with. And so a man's life is not measured in the abundance of things that he has, uh, but out of the abundance of his heart. And that's what we learn from the life of Job. And we see with his testimony three things that I want you to notice. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright. Now, what does that mean when it says perfect? If you've been in church any amount of time, you've heard this from the pulpit, uh, that the word perfect does not mean sinless, does not mean without error, but it means mature. In other words, Job was not a child when it came to the things of God. Job was a mature man. I don't think that word perfect merely means mature. Can I give you another word that I think goes right along with it? And it's the word balanced. You ever seen a person that you felt was balanced? I mean, they, everything in life, nothing seemed to be out of proportion. Uh, they were a hard worker, but they knew how to enjoy themselves. Uh, they loved their family and made them a priority, but they understood the importance of, of times of solitude. And it seemed like in every facet of life they were a balanced human being. Well, that comes from age. That comes from time spent living this life and walking this journey. And Job, we don't know how old Job was, uh, but Job was a man that was perfect and balanced. He was a mature man. Could I put it this way? He had it all together. Spiritually speaking, he had it all together. You ever see people sometimes? I know you do. I do. I guess everyone does sometimes. But you ever see someone that was just a total and utter mess? 
I mean, it seemed like nothing in their life was, was together. But everything was just to pieces all the time. And spiritually speaking, that's particularly so. A lot of times when you see folks and meet folks and know folks that one month, I mean, they're, you know, they're the greatest Christian you've ever met. And they're in church and they're on fire and they're doing something for God. And the next month you see them and they're out of church and you've not seen them in three, four weeks and they're gone. Those are people that are immature and that's why they do that. Like children tossed to and fro, the Bible says. Well, Job was not a man like that. When you looked at Job, you saw a man that was mature. You saw a man that was balanced. You saw a man that spiritually had things together. But then I want you to notice this. The Bible says he's upright. Now, what does that mean, upright? It literally means straightened or to sit upright. I remember whenever I was in school, man, you'd hear that all the time. Sit up, sit up, sit up. And uh, I thought, man, one of these days I'm going to graduate and nobody in my life's ever going to tell me to sit up again. And uh, yesterday we was at the loan office uh, talking to the to the man that has all the money, and and we were sitting there, and Mom looked at me and she said, "Sit up straight, sit up straight." It's just some stuff you don't get away from, you know. It literally means he was upright, upstanding. That's a terminology that we use, an upstanding individual. So we see something about his his. Uh, his public life, his, or his private life. This was a man that was genuine. This was a man that was honest. This was a man that loved God on the outside and on the inside. And when you looked at him, it was evident. And then we see something about uh, his public life. Look what it says here. The Bible says he feared God and eschewed evil. So if you were to know Job on a personal level, uh, he was a man that was, was mature and balanced and had things together. But if you knew him just merely on the external, you'd know two things about him. One was that he feared God. It was evident from his life that he was a spiritual individual. Now, that word spiritual has been so twisted today that I almost gag when I say it. But when I say spiritual, I mean he knew God. He knew God. And he didn't just know about Him, he knew Him personally. In fact, we know this is true because when Satan comes before the Lord and uh, says, I've been walking to and fro uh, around the earth, uh, the Lord says, have you considered Job? They had a personal relationship. I mean, God knew who Job was. And when he could have said something about anyone else in the world, he said something about Job. He knew Job's name. So he feared God, but then he eschewed evil. Uh, You wouldn't catch Job down at the bar on Saturday nights. You wouldn't catch Job catching the the latest uh, movie, R-rated mess and nonsense with nudity and all kinds of stuff. You wouldn't find Job doing that. He was a man that eschewed evil. He ran from it is literally what it means. We use that terminology shoe today, and, and it, I know you're not going to believe me, but there is an etymological connection between them. Uh, you've heard the nursery rhymes and the little songs that people sing about telling a fly to shoe. Uh, this was a man that avoided evil at all costs. He didn't want the appearance of evil staining his life. He didn't want the effects of evil staining his life. And he didn't want the effects of evil staining the life of his family through him. This was a man that ran from evil. He took all the proper precautions, if I can say that, say that five times fast. Amen. I think about what Paul said when he said to make no provision for the flesh. That was how, how Job was. In other words, Job said, I'm not going to even let Satan get a foothold in my life as far as wickedness is concerned. I'm not going to allow even even one portion of my life to be yielded unto him for service. We see that his whole life may have been yielded to Satan for suffering, but I think we can say pretty confidently that none of his life was yielded to him for service. He was a man that eschewed evil. And then I want you to notice this. We see he had the right private life and the right public life. Look at verse number 4. The Bible says, And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day. 
and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. Now, Job knew what was going on. He didn't whitewash what was going on. He didn't make excuses for He knew what they were doing. He knew that there was wickedness and wrongdoing taking place in the, in the homes of his children. He knew what was going on, but what did he do about it? And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them, rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. We see a word about his prayer life. This was a man that spent time in prayer and believed in the power of prayer. Now stop and think about what he's doing. I mean, he, he is so fearful that uh, of the way that his children are living and the things that they're doing, that day in and day out he does not address it by running to them and pleading with them. He doesn't address it by writing them out of the will. How does he deal with it? And by the way, it's not that he would have been unwilling to do those things. I don't think that's it. I think what it is is he understood the power of prayer. And so he goes before the Lord and pleads for them and makes sacrifices for them so that God might have mercy upon his children. This is a man with a prayer life. Now you say, preacher, why did you say all those things? I thought we were talking about Satan and the way Satan deals. Well, here's the thing I want you to understand. Uh, Just because you live for the Lord, that doesn't mean Satan doesn't attack you. In fact, I go a step further and say the very fact that you do live for the Lord is a good reason that Satan attacks you. There's a lot of people in the world that Satan could have attacked, but he attacked the man that feared God and eschewed evil. And it's that way today. I promise you, the easiest way to live your life, now you won't be happy, you won't be joyful, you won't have fruit spiritually, but I mean as far as to keep Satan away from trying to oppress and afflict you, the easiest way is just to give up, live like everybody else. If you're not a threat to him, you're not a threat to him. We do have an adversary, and he's walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's looking for people. Do you remember what the demon said in the book of Acts? Uh, whenever they went to cast out the, uh, the uh, demons out of that man, the vagabond sons of Siva, the vagabond Jews, and they came and they decided that they were going to cast some demons out of a fella. And they said this, they said, uh, come out of him, I, I'm paraphrasing, we adjure thee uh, by the name of Jesus whom Paul preacheth. That's what they said. Jesus whom Paul preacheth. And it's interesting the way that those demons answered. They said to him, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who art thou? They knew the name of Paul. We know they know the name of Jesus. The Bible says the devils also believe and tremble. When they met him uh, in in the Bible, they they called him the Son of God, and they recognized and reverenced his authority. They had to. Uh, He was the God of all creation. It was necessary that they do that. But they knew the name of Paul. They knew the name of Paul. Do you think they knew the name of Paul back when he was Saul of Tarsus? I don't know whether they did or not, but I would say this, that if they did know it, it was for a different reason. But now that he's living for the Lord, now that he's serving God, they know his name. He's a threat to them. And the second that you make up your mind to give everything to Jesus Christ, the second that you make up your mind to give your home to Jesus Christ, or or your marriage to Jesus Christ, or your uh, private life, your, your devotional time to Jesus Christ, The day that you make up your mind to get sin out of your life and your home and and your house and do something for God is the day that Satan gets your number. It's the day that he gets your number. Job had everything right, and that was the very reason Satan was after him. So we see the testimony of Job. And Satan says, been walking around, and the Lord says, and I thought about, I didn't title it this, but I thought about titling the message a considered servant. 
Because I like what the Lord says. Hast thou considered my servant Job? You know what I think is implied here? And I might be wrong. You've got to be careful about, about implying or inferring things in the Word of God. But do you know what I think? that If we really read carefully what I think we see here, I think that Satan comes up before the Lord to gloat. I think he shows up to tell the Lord how wicked the world is. That's what he does. The Bible calls him in Revelation chapter 12 the accuser of the brethren. Now, if he'll accuse the Lord over the brethren, then I promise he'll try to accuse uh, uh, the Lord over uh, creation and how things have gone and what's taken place. And I think there was sort of a smug sarcasm in what Satan said when he said, in walking to and fro through the earth. I think what he was saying is, I've been surveying my handiwork and the mess that I have made of your creation. And the Lord says this, Hast thou considered my servant Job? I know it's a mess. I know man's wicked. I know that he's depraved. I know he's, that mankind has made their own choices. But there's still people like Job. There's still people like Job that love me, that love my word, that, that love uh, the things of God, that are trying to raise their family right. Let me just encourage you tonight in saying this. I know the world's in an awful mess, but that don't mean that our lives have to be in an awful mess. That doesn't mean that our homes have to be an awful mess. doesn't mean that our church has to be an awful mess. Just because this world is an awful mess doesn't mean we can't do what we can do. I know we can't do everything. There's no question we can't do everything. But that's no excuse to not do anything. And so Job says, the Lord says about Job, consider him. Look at his life. And so Satan does that. And he says this. Look what it says in verse number 9. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Now, that's an interesting question. We could preach, I mean, all night just on that question. Why do we fear God? Do we fear God because it benefits us? Do we fear God because it blesses us? Do we fear God because we've been trained to fear God? Or do we fear God because we know Him and He's worthy to be feared? That word fear doesn't mean terror, but it has the idea of a godly reverence. In other words, we know who and what God is and what He's worthy of. It says, Does Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not made an hedge about him, and about his house, and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy faith. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So we see the testimony of Job, but I want you to notice the tactics of Satan. The Lord says to Satan, you can touch his life, but you cannot touch him. You can touch what he has, but you cannot touch him. Now, there's going to be another conversation in chapter number 2 where the Lord says, you can touch his health, but you can't take his life. But at this point, the Lord says, anything that belongs to Job, that you can touch, but you cannot touch him. And so, how does Satan go about afflicting Job. There's a whole sermon that could be preached on this dynamic here. The Lord's in control. The Lord's allowing what's happening. Could we even go a step further and say that the Lord is using Satan to accomplish His purpose? Now we say, well, preacher, I don't know about that, but isn't that always been the case? That the Lord has used Satan to accomplish His purpose? I mean, do you really think that God's grand plan was for, uh, for humanity was for two people to live in a garden through eternity? Do you think that was really what God had in mind for the human race? Two people tending a garden through all eternity? No, friend. He wanted to express His grace and His love and His mercy to mankind. He could only do that if mankind was fallen. doesn't mean Adam and Eve didn't make their choices. 
What it means is that God already accounted for their choices. God has a grand plan woven through the free will of mankind. It will shock you sometime to see just how much control God's got and just how in control God is. And so he's using Satan to do this. But it's Satan that's doing it. There's no question. And Satan uses four or five things. Depends on how much time I've got as to whether he used four or five. Amen. But four or five things to afflict the life of Job. And I want you to notice what they are. Notice first off that he used his faith or attacked his faith. We just read it, but look at verse number 11 again. But put forth, this is Satan speaking, but put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath and he will curse thee to thy face. One of the things that had sustained Job through his life, no doubt, was his faith in the God of creation. His faith in the covenant God. His faith in the Lord God Elohim. That's who he was trusting in. His relationship sustained him. But now Satan says to him, God, you've been nothing but blessing to him and good to him, but what happens when you turn your hand against him? When it says to put forth your hand, it's not in the idea of a hand of power, a hand of blessing, but literally what it means is it's saying, turn your hand against Job. What we see through the next uh, 39 chapters or so of the book of Job, I understand Satan was afflicting him, but don't mistake it either, friend. The very hand of God was working both for Job and against Job. Let me say this, that the hand of God cannot work against and with us at the same time, but it can work against and for us at the same time. Let me say that again. I really want you to get that. The hand of God cannot work against and with us at the same time. But the hand of God can work against and for us at the same time. In other words, sometimes God has to do things in our life we don't like, and it's for our good. It's for our betterment. And that's what we see in the life of Job. The next 39 chapters or so is God putting His hand, working against what Job wanted and desired. All through the rest of the book of Job, you know what his big complaint is? If I've said this once, I've said it a hundred times, but I'll say it again tonight. Job's biggest complaint was that he couldn't get a hold of God. This vibrant relationship that he had had with the God of heaven now seemed dry and dead and empty. And Satan used that as an affliction in his life. I'm thankful we've got a God that knows what we can handle. I'm glad that we've got a God that knows what we can take. But understand that sometimes the way that uh, Satan will try to afflict you is through persecuting your faith and your relationship with the Lord. He'll come along. He hates faith. You know that? He's the God of everything sensual. And he hates that which is spiritual and that which is of faith. It's contrary to him. Because true biblical faith is believing the promises of God. That's what biblical faith is. Believing the Word of God. And so when we exercise faith, we're, we're telling Satan that God is true and let every man be a liar. And that bothers Satan. And so he attacks his faith, his relationship with the Lord. I wish I could tell you that every time I go into the prayer closet, that I mean the Shekinah glory of God falls and I just get a fresh revelation, but I'd have to lie to you to tell you that. The truth of the matter is, there's times when the prayer closet's dry. There's times when it's difficult There's times when it takes effort. There's times when it takes commitment and discipline to stay in the prayer closet or to stay in your Bible. And it's at those times Satan would seek to discourage us. Now, God has something great for us. And if we'll trust Him, uh, maybe we'll learn to live off something better than just the old corn of the land. 
Maybe we'll learn that there's something better to have than just the old manna, that there's new fruit in the land to feast on. But a lot of times in the intervening periods of time, Satan tries to afflict us. So he attacks his faith, first of all. Look at verse number 14. The Bible says this, And there came a messenger unto Job, and said the oxen were plowing, and the asses feeding beside them, and the Sabians fell upon them, and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Now, that's pretty bad right there. Uh, that was a big financial blow. When you look at the amount of livestock that Job had, that was a pretty big chunk right there of, of his finances. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven, hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Verse 17, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. You know, it seems sometimes like that's how the troubles of life come, isn't it? Just as soon as you find out about one, there's another one following close on it on its heels. Job finds out in a few moments. Now, you say, how do you know it's a few moments? Well, I believe my Bible. While one was speaking, the next came. While he was speaking, the next came. I mean, in a matter of a few minutes, Job went from blessed to bankrupt. Satan was using his finances to attack him. Now, I know we're not supposed to preach and talk about money because that's not spiritual. But I promise if I took everything out of your wallet, you'd want to talk about it. It takes money to live. We know that. And oftentimes through the financial difficulties and burdens that we bear, Satan will seek to discourage us and defeat us. He'll seek to come up behind us and tell us God isn't big enough to take care of our problems. He'll seek to come up beside us and tell us that God doesn't care about those things. He's not interested. Let me tell you something. Anybody that tells you that God's not interested in anything that has to do with your life, if there's some area, I remember a, a statement that was made. An old Bible teacher by the name of G. Campbell Morgan said this one time. You've heard me say this, I'm sure. But somebody asked him, said, you know, does God care about our little problems, the small things in life? And he looked at that young man and said, what in your life would be big to God? What problems in your life would be big to the Lord? God cares about those things. He's interested in those things. They concern Him, especially in as much as they concern us. Let me tell you something, oftentimes financial difficulties can be a burden and a stumbling block and a hindering place in our Christian walk. It ought not be. We, we've got the God that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But as long as we live in this world, I think there'll be times when we probably struggle with it. And Satan will use that oftentimes to afflict and to oppress us. Notice another thing here. We see not only finances, but look at verse number 18. The Bible says, While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. You know, sometimes Satan uses our family to try to afflict us and discourage us. Sometimes he uses our family. There's probably not a person in this room that doesn't have a family member that they're burdened for. Maybe an immediate family, maybe a child, maybe a brother or sister or, or a father or mother, or maybe a distant family member. But there's probably not a single person in this room that doesn't have somebody in their family that you're worried about their soul. That can be a weight. That can be a burden. That's the reason we call it having a burden. It's not wrong to have a burden, but you know, sometimes the devil can come along and pile other things that are less significant on it Make the weight so heavy that we just can't bear. 
Nothing's harder than watching a family member that you love go the wrong direction. That's the hardest thing about it. People have asked me about what, you know, pastoring and what pastoring's like. And uh, the best thing to do is just shove somebody in front of a moving truck. And it's that you've got a pretty good idea, amen? But uh, what pastoring is like, the difficulties of it. I'll be honest, the 3 a.m. phone calls are not that tough. I'm a night owl. I mean, they're, they're really not. The hospital visits are not that bad. I like going to the hospitals. they got pretty good cafeterias. Um, studying, you know, preaching, I love to preach. I love to talk. If I didn't have a Bible, I'd read a phone book to you. The difficult thing about preaching is watching people make bad decisions. It's a difficult thing about pastoring. Watching people go a direction that you know is going to hurt them, despite all your guidance and counsel, And pleading and begging, they still go that way. They still go that way. Sometimes Satan will use those things to discourage us and to defeat us. I don't know the entire dynamic about Job's children. I have an opinion. My opinion is that Job's children weren't living for God. Now, not everybody has to believe that. If you you want to believe that the wine that it speaks about in verse number 18 is is new wine, you can believe that. If if you want to believe that that Job was given sacrifices for him just in case, that's fine. But I believe Job's children were not living for God, and I believe it burdened him. And now he's heard that some of his children have died, very likely died without a faith in God. Job is about to stand beside ten freshly dug graves not knowing where his children are. What heavier burden is there than that? You know, I, I, I almost shudder even to talk about it because it's almost too much more than anybody could bear. But you know, sometimes in the reality of those situations that sometimes you have to deal with, Satan will use that as an occasion to afflict and oppress us. And use that as an opportunity to drag us to a depth that there's no climbing out of. Not that God can't reach down, not that God's not able, but a place that's so dark that we can't even see any light above us. Sometimes He uses our family to afflict us. Look at chapter number 2. Some time has gone by and there's been another discussion and, and confrontation between the Lord and Satan. And Satan says this in verse number 4. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord uh, to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes." Sometimes Satan will use our feebleness, our sickness, our illness to persecute and afflict us. I don't believe that sickness is the result of sin. Uh, I know there's some that have us to believe. I'm aware that the fact that sickness is a reality in the human experience is a result of, of sin. But, I mean, sin, sickness in the life of an individual, I don't believe you can always attribute that to sin. By the same token, I don't believe you could say it's never the case. But I don't believe you can attribute every instance of sickness uh, to someone uh, suffering uh, or someone committing sin. I, I, today, I, two more families today that I know and love that cancer has touched. And there's some in this room that battle it and have battled it. 
And there may be some in this room that will battle it. I'm not saying that sickness is a result of sin in a person's life. But we do understand from the book of Job that Satan was able, with the permission of God, to use sickness in the life of Job. And it was for the purpose of perfecting him. God understood that. But Satan's intention was to persecute him. And we need to understand, I always try to talk to people, warn people, counsel people about this when they're coming into a time of illness that you need to be extra vigilant. Because anywhere where there's bodily weakness, there's emotional depression soon to follow. And beyond emotional depression is spiritual discouragement. It's, it's possible to suffer from depression without being spiritually discouraged. It's possible. It's possible to battle it on an emotional level and be aware that you're battling it on an emotional level and it be purely and wholly valid. But you stay in that darkness long enough and oftentimes spiritual discouragement will follow. And so Job is facing the weakness and the decaying of his body. A pain that we can't even imagine. The Bible says from the crown of his head down to his feet, covered in boils. These bowls are big enough that he takes a potsherd, a piece of potter, and scrapes himself with it to try to clean out the wounds. Satan comes along and says, you know, the reason you're dealing with this is because of the way you've been living. We're going to see in a little while how Satan said that. He said it through some friends, but Satan's message when we're sick usually is that it's our fault. And it is the result of sin. You know, that's part of the reason I have a problem with the, with so much of the, the prosperity preaching and charismatic movement of today. Is I, I sense the same satanic spirit that a, oppressed Job oppressing people and telling them that, that sickness is just the result of personal sin in their life. That's what Satan tried to tell Job. And he spent the next 30-some chapters using his friends to try to tell him that. And they came along. You know what they basically said? Basically said, well, you must have sinned because you've done something, because you're, you're sick, you're afflicted. And they come along and they say, well, you have sinned. We know that you've sinned because you're afflicted. And someone comes along and says, if you just get right, you wouldn't be afflicted anymore. Well, that sounds like somebody that's not sitting in the ash heap, doesn't it? Sounds like somebody that's not going through it. So Satan used his, his feebleness, his sickness to afflict him. And then he used his friends. I won't preach it, I just touched on it. But look at verse number 11. The Bible says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they rent every one his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw his grief was very great. Now, up to that point, they had been a friend to him. But over the next thirty-some chapters, they're going to uh, begin to basically uh, take away all the friendship that they have towards him. Basically, uh, um, there's a word I'm looking for and it's not coming to me. Uh, somebody needs to buy a dictionary, amen? Deconstruct the friendship that they've had one with another. There's an interesting phrase that's used in verse number 2 of chapter 4. Eliphaz says this. He says, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? 
but who can withhold himself from speaking? You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I know if we speak to you, you're going to be grieved. But we just can't help speaking to you. Now, that's not friendship, is it? To say, I know what I'm going to say is going to make it worse, but I've got to say it anyway. Let me say this. If what we're going to say is going to make it worse, we'll just keep our mouths shut. Well, just keep our mouths shut. If it doesn't edify, if it doesn't build up, if it doesn't exhort, if it doesn't accomplish anything, well, just keep our mouths shut. I've got, if you're like me, you have trouble with that sometimes. There's been lots of times I've said something and I've wished I could just scoop all them words right back up and swallow them again, but you can't. And Satan uses his friends, and we could put that word friends in quotations to afflict Job. People that quote-unquote mean well. Sometimes they don't just mean well, they're just mean. People that are coming along to take advantage, they're opportunistic. And you know what they're opportunistic with? They're opportunistic with their pride. It's an opportunity for them to tear somebody down, build themselves up. Make themselves feel good about the situation by bringing you down and telling you everything wrong with your life. The funny thing about it is they missed the mark, didn't they? God says to him later on, says, Who is this that darkeneth counsel? That's what he said about him. Darkeneth counsel with grievous words. In other words, you missed it, fellas. You didn't get it right. I don't want to come to the end of my life and find out that Satan used me to discourage more than God used me to encourage. I don't want to come to the end of my life and find out I was more of a stumbling block than I was an encouragement to people. And so Satan uses his friends. Now, we're going to stop there and just ask this question. What can you do about it? We've seen the testimony of Job and the tactics of Satan. But what techniques are there to deal with Satan? If you live for the Lord, you're going to deal with Satan some. You may not deal with him directly. And and I don't want to presume to understand too much of what goes on in in satanic matters. But we understand that Satan is not an omniscient being. But you're going to deal with satanic influence. Satan's going to try to discourage and oppress you. How can you deal with it? Well, I want to give you a few things, four things that you can do to deal with it. Can I do that for you? I want you? I want to say first off that you need to recognize your adversary. You need to recognize that there is a devil and he's out to get you. You say, that's an alarmist mentality. Well, if there's something to be alarmed about, so be it. I think we ought to be alarmed about it. I think we ought to recognize that. In fact, what does God say about it? Is God an alarmist? I don't think so. He says this in 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. I understand we're not to be be fearful, but the Lord says stand up and pay attention because you've got an enemy. That's what it means, isn't it? Be sober, be vigilant. It means stand up and pay attention because you've got an enemy. We need to recognize that. We need to realize, let me tell you something, 90% of church problems could be solved if people would realize who the enemy is. Just realize the enemy's not the person that sits across the aisle or across the pew from you. The, the enemy's not even the person that may have upset you or be upset at you. The enemy is the devil. He's our adversary. We need to recognize that. Most problems really in life in general could be solved if we'd realize that. That we have an adversary and you need to recognize him. You need to understand that he hates you. Say, so I've never done anything to him. You know what you've done to him? You got born again. And he won't be. And he's filled with evil and hate. 
And He wants to destroy you, and you need to recognize that. It's high time that we count the cost for this thing and realize the risk of this thing. Understand that those people that you meet whose lives are a mess, it's because Satan's got a grip and a foothold in their life. The drug addicts that you meet on, on, on the street or the alcoholics or, or uh, the, you know, the thieves, the people in prison, people whose lives have gone down the tubes, it's because they've given their life to Satan. He'll do that to you or your children or your grandchildren if you'll let him do that. He has a desire to. We need to recognize our adversary. Number two, we need to respect his ability. You say, well, respect him, preacher. I thought we were supposed to hate him. Well, I, I think you ought to hate him. But when I say respect his ability, I, I mean we ought to respect him in the same way that you'd respect a poisonous snake. You ought to understand his power. Understand his ability. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Second uh, Corinthians chapter number 2, uh, verses 10 to 11. Paul says this, To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. That's a pretty big, that's, that's a big blank check to write, isn't it? Think about saying that to somebody. You forgive somebody for something, I'll forgive them too. Boy, I mean, what what would that mean for church life if we practiced that? What if I walked up to to Richard and said, Richard, anybody that you forgive over anything, I'll forgive them about it too. You know, what he'd probably do, just out of meanness, is he'd go and find my worst enemy and forgive them. (laughs) But you see, that's the very truth that Paul's trying to teach. I forgive them if you'll forgive them. And I bet you'll forgive him if I'll forgive him. And we ought to all forgive him. You know why? Listen to what it says. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, forgave I it in the person of Christ. We forgive him because God forgives him. That's why. We forgive him because God forgives him. And then he says this. uh, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. It tells me this, unforgiveness is a breeding ground for satanic influence. That's what Paul teaches there, isn't it? He says, I forgave him if you forgave him, and I forgave him in the person of Christ because Satan is trying to get a foothold. We don't need to let him do that. I wonder how many times my unforgiveness has been the foothold that Satan needed to destroy someone, to harm my life. My unforgiveness of somebody was what he needed. There's been times I'm sure he's gotten it. So Paul understands this, that Satan is present, Satan has a desire to destroy, and he has the capability to destroy. He wants to destroy. It's interesting, and I'll touch on this verse again, but listen to what the Bible says in the book of Jude, verse number 9. It says, Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now Michael the archangel, Michael the archangel, Whenever he had to face the devil, he understood who he was up against. We better be careful lest we just stroll through this thing with pride and arrogance and allow the devil to get a foothold in our lives. So we need to respect his ability. Then notice number three, we need to resist his attacks. We need to resist his attacks. Two times in the Bible, but I'm just going to give you one of them. Uh, In James chapter 4 and verse number 7, the Bible says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a fight. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's warfare. It's not easy. It's warfare. It's not for the faint of heart. It's warfare. And it's always going to be warfare until the war is done. And we've got to resist. We've got to resist. We're getting ready to go up to camp in, in, I think, about 27 days. And every year, 
from the first year that I, and this is true of every camp, I'm sure, but every year from the first year that I went up, every year, if you pay attention, and the camp workers can tell you this, if you pay attention, you can see Satan picks him somebody when the week starts out. And you can see Satan starting to try to work and fight and get a grip on those young people and on those preaching services. Every year, never fails. Every year, people, people that would never turn a strong word to the other, fussing and feuding and quarreling. Small things, petty things. You say, oh boy, that's a, that's a pretty shameful thing to say. No, that tells me we're doing something right. We're doing something right. We're doing something up there that Satan's not happy about. And whatever makes Satan unhappy, you just chalk me up for more of it. I want more of it. But there's always a battle. It's always a fight. It's always a struggle. You say, how do we deal with that preacher? You've got to resist. Every time he tries to use you, you resist him. Every time he tries to use somebody else against you, you resist him. Call him for who and what he is. Wouldn't our world be a lot better if we just call good, good, and evil, evil? Wouldn't that be a lot better? I was talking to somebody about it today. We're talking about cable news. Man, if there's ever anything, it's a waste of time. It's talking about cable news. We were talking about it today, and they said, the thing that irritates me is they just won't call it what it is. I think we'd be a lot better if we'd just call it what it is. It's Satan trying to destroy and attack us. We need to recognize that. And once we recognize it, then we can resist it. We won't resist it until we recognize it. Till you acknowledge it and call it what it is. You won't fight against it. It'll always be bad luck or somebody's bad mood or something going on or something happening or that was unfortunate. Till you call it what it is, you won't resist against it. But once we call it what it is, we'll, we'll resist. We can resist if we're willing to. And that's what you have to do. It's a daily battle. Even the Son of God. Now, if there's anybody that Satan knows he can't defeat it, you'd think he'd be the Son of God, wouldn't you? But the Bible says after the temptation, Luke chapter number 4, that, that Satan departed from him for a season. That means that Satan came back. It always comes back. We've got to resist and resist and resist. One day he'll be vanquished. But until that time, we've got to resist. Some of you, when you get home, you'll have to resist. I'm serious. I'm telling you the truth. I mean, let's, let's break out of preacher mode for a moment. Can I just talk to you? Some of you, by the time you get home, Satan will be trying to afflict you. You'll have to resist. You'll have to make up your mind about what you're going to turn on the TV or what you're going to do at your house or the attitudes you're going to take with somebody. I'm saying this thing's a real war and we need to get a handle on that because there's a high cost. Then notice a final thing and I'm done. We see that we have to rely on our advocate. We don't have the strength, but Christ has the strength. Now, I know it's easy to say that, and that sounds like something people would preach, but it, do you know it's really true? We have an advocate, and we have to rely on him. That's what Michael did. He said, the Lord rebuke thee. I told you I'd reference that verse again. I didn't, I didn't lie. He said, the Lord rebuke thee. Now, I don't believe he was just invoking the name of the Lord like open sesame. But what he was saying was this, Satan, I may not have the strength, but the one in whose name I've come, he has the strength. He has the strength. I may not be anybody for you to be afraid of, but the Lord, he's somebody for you to fear. So you've got to rely on him. There's a hundred ways, and I'm not going to go down and give you a laundry list, but let me just say this, that if we're not reading our Bible, we're not relying on the Lord. We can say we are, but that's a lie. If we're not reading our Bible, if we're not praying... 
We're not being as faithful as we can be to the things of God. We're not relying on the Lord. Uh, you say, how, how do you figure that, preacher? Well, he wouldn't have given us those things if we didn't need those things. So evidently, if he thinks we need those things and we want to rely on him, we better do what he says and have those things. You know how he said it? He said, put on therefore the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. It takes the whole armor. Amen? It don't just take part of the armor. It takes the whole armor. He finds some area of you that's unprotected. He'll attack it. You mark her down. We have an adversary tonight. He afflicts us. He afflicts me. I believe he afflicts you too. He may have been afflicting you throughout this service. He may have been persecuting you before you came in the door. You may, before you make it to your car, have a spiritual battle with him. And we better take it seriously. And we better we get, better get prayed up, studied up, and get our relationship shored up with the Lord to fight these battles. Because like it or not, we're in it. So we better get ready for it.